3: Hey folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go in, rate this podcast, uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes.
1: Yeah, if if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. (laughs) Special Operations.
0: Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts,
3: Jack Murphy and David Park. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Team House. This is episode 148. I'm Jack Murphy, here with co-host David Park, deproducing here behind the scenes. Uh, tonight, our guest on the show is Fred Galvin. He is the author of A Few Bad Men. Fred spent, uh, geez, what, what was it, 27 years in the Marine Corps? Uh, yeah, 27 years in the Marine Corps, uh, served in Afghanistan, Iraq, Kuwait, And he was also a MARSOC officer. He was uh, the officer that was out on what became an infamous deployment, MARSOC's first deployment overseas, uh, that saw him and his men uh, persecuted, really, by, by the military in many ways. And Fred has taken the story of him and his men and compiled it into this book that is coming out on June 7th. Uh, we'll post a link to Amazon for you guys to go and check it out. But this episode, we're going to be talking to Fred all about his career and about this first deployment of MARSOC and the fallout that came from that. Um, before we get into
1: it with Fred, uh, Dave, you want to give a shout-out to one of our sponsors here? Sure. Uh, which one? Oh! Boykies! Uh, you guys, we love Boykies. It's Biltong. It's better than beef jerky. Um it's it's a healthy snack uh what else can we say about we love boykies if you watch the show you know we love this stuff um in fact this is our last pack of it boykies uh uh but anyway uh yeah check them out uh boikies.com that's b-o-i-k-e-y-s uh boikies.com and team 10 for 10 percent off right d yeah perfect yeah Thanks. so
3: fred thank you for joining us tonight really appreciate it man um to just kind of jump right into it, could you tell us a little bit about sort of your origin story about your upbringing and the path that sort of brought you into the Marine Corps?
0: Well, basically what's going on uh, that led me to the join the Marine Corps was a young, young kid there in uh, Kansas growing up. Um, we, our family took a trip back to the battlefields of the Revolutionary and Civil Wars in the East Coast And uh, my mom was actually a travel coordinator. So she met with all these uh, different tour planners, uh, National Park Service rangers, uh, tour guides, and went on some incredible tours there and had for the first and only time explained to me that, uh, you know, what was going on there. I never had heard anything like that before in my life. And uh, so all of a sudden, you know, here I am seeing... uh, you know, these reenactments, you know, hearing very descriptive stories about how incredible it was to uh, you know, these guys fight for our freedom. Also, like in the Civil War, fight to end oppression. So it was really moving. And at 10 years old, I didn't have any prior military experience or any family that were in the military. But I, I knew right then and there, like, that's something that I've, I wanted to do. And that lasted all the way through going through high school. A buddy of mine in high school said, you know, if you want to fight, this was in 1987. It's like the Marines are the first to fight. That's their slogan. And so I'm like, okay, that's a, uh, that's what I want to do and uh, join the Marine Corps. Actually that guy that uh, talked to me about the Marine Corps, because I didn't know the difference between the army and everything else. He ended up, he enlisted and he had a contract going a week right after high school and he smoked dope on spring break. So he lost his contract and, the recruiter told me he's like, "Hey man, are you interested in going into uh, the ring to boot camp a week after high school?" I was supposed to wait till July, and so the guy said uh, it was about 35 years ago. Hey, you know, we got a ticket for you, and I'm like, "This is like a dream come true." So I went to boot camp one week immediately after high school, and went out here to the West Coast, uh, stationed in uh, Camp Pendleton, just north of San Diego, and uh, that was like a dream come true. Uh, deployed overseas in Desert Shield, Desert Storm and uh, into Saudi Arabia and liberation of Kuwait, uh, came back. I had previously taken uh, an indoc to get into Recon. however, the um, my company executive officer, you know, held that against me. He's like, yo, this is just a bunch of glorified grunts, right. you know, and held that against me and held my head underwater or that entire deployment thought I was trying to get out of the deployment or which was nonsense. But even afterwards, after returning, I was not able to go over and join reconnaissance. So I got out, went to college and then became a stockbroker for two years. Uh, first with an investment banking firm in uh, La Jolla. And then I joined Smith Barney uh, when they were the largest firm on wall street. And then, uh, but I really had a desire to get back into the Marine Corps that took two forms i tried to enlist again and i was a sergeant so they didn't have any boat space for Mm -hmm. sergeants this is a drawdown in uh, the military 1995 Mm -hmm. Uh, president clint was there so severe cutbacks and uh, so i put a package in to get commissioned and picked up immediately and went off and then did the year in uh, virginia getting trained as an infantry officer, went straight back out to California uh, to serve as a platoon commander in uh, 1st Marine Division. And then I uh, went over to force reconnaissance, did two tours, uh, three years as a force recon platoon commander, one in Okinawa and fifth force recon. And then I went out, um, I think the Army calls it a off tour, non-operational. Uh, I was an instructor at the Marine Corps' version of Top Gun in Yuma, Arizona. Uh, it's called the weapons and tactics instructor course. I was the guy on the ground, the reconnaissance instructor that just coordinated helleborne raids uh, and airstrikes. So we'd control massive formations of road and fixed wing close air support for these massive uh, exercises where an infantry company would come in via helicopter uh, mortars and artillery would be firing. And uh, we would have a team of us, one of us, Would control the jets. One control the attack helicopters, and then uh, other parts of this, what we call a fist team, would call control the mortars and then the other artillery. And we do all that in about a 50-minute time period with massive amounts of ordnance going on uh, in support of the infantry. Did that for 15 months, and there was a uh, training fatality in Camp Pendleton with First Force Reconnaissance Company, and they removed the chain of command. The platoon commander platoon sergeant team leader uh, the shooter ended up being in prison for a while um for shooting accidentally shooting a it was through negligence killed a, a role player oh. uh, so i kind of got early released out of yuma and went to camp pendleton california for my second uh, tour as a force recon platoon commander uh did that for three years and then got promoted moved over in the ops role uh for the force recon company and then um uh, they got slated as the first uh, commanding officer, Marine Special Operations Command. Uh, we deployed in 2007 as a task force and so this to is, Afghanistan uh, we, on the border. We,
3: we did an interview with, uh, was it Pete Perry? Yeah. A few episodes back. And so an enlisted soldier enlist, enlisted Marine talking about this yes. experience when he was forced recon and they came back from training and like some staff guy was like, uh, you guys are now this thing called like man sock or something like that. And he's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so, so you're telling it from the officer side. Um, what, what was that like for you from, from your perspective, the formation of MARSOC and, and transitioning from force to, to MARSOC, to Marine Special Operations?
0: Well, good question. And I'll, I'll back it up a little bit. So we have, uh, some perspective, uh, data points, some trends. Mm-hmm. So the Marine Corps was forced to do to get into special operations back in World War II. What preceded that was the British Royal Marines. Uh, Winston Churchill wanted a commando organization to go behind German lines and wreak havoc with their command and control headquarters. Uh, so he they formed a little assessment selection up in the Scottish Highlands and. They had, it was a, from all joint services, but it was under the British Royal Marines and they had a commando force. So when Churchill did that, FDR wanted the same and uh, told the Marines, make it happen. Marines didn't want even the name commando. Um, they settled on the name Raider. They had uh, you know, four Raider battalions. They fought, they were activated in February of 1942. And while they were fighting in the South Pacific during the island hopping campaigns, Two years after their activation, they were disbanded. Stroke of a pen, one sentence from General Vandergrift to comment on the Marine Corps, "To it is not in the best interest of the Marine Corps to have an elite with an elite. Um, so, boom, away they go. They mostly assimilated back in the infantry and fought, several of them did on uh, the Battle of Okinawa. Why is that important? Well, as you both know, in 1987, when they stood up the activation of the, the U.S. Special Operations Command, what did the Marine Corps do? That's right. Nothing. Uh, second data point, you know, they, they didn't want to participate again and uh, because it's basically dethroning every Marine supposed to be elite. That's consideration. Right. And the consideration Marine Corps is very ego driven, self-righteous organization. I love it. But, uh, to tell an infantryman in, in the Marine Corps that there's somebody that can possibly train more and have more special skills. That's a, it's like sacrilege. So that, that's the second data point. Third data point, 2001, we attacked uh, Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld said, I want all of the joint services to increase capacity of their special operations forces. So what happened? As you guys both know, uh, Green Brays added a battalion per special forces group, those fourth battalions. The SEAL teams added SEAL Team seven and eight. Uh, the Marine Corps, uh, they just took a little relax, and uh, then they got a little bit more pressure. They sent some liaisons down to Tampa Special Operations Command. They got a little bit more pressure. They tried to slow roll it by doing this Marine Corps Special Operations Detachment 1, a proof of concept for two years and stretching to three years. That uh, The intention was to slow roll. You know, Bush was expected to be a one-term president like his father. Number, uh, the younger, junior, uh, they thought he's going to be gone. He got reelected, and well, we know what happened there. He kept uh, Rumsfeld on a second administration. Rumsfeld put the pressure and said, "Marine Corps, make it happen." So uh, there was three separate periods in the Marine Corps history that the Marine Corps didn't want and was forced to do this. So when you talk about the activation ceremony, Jack. Uh, it was, I was there in Camp Lejeune in February, 2006. It was, uh, officiated, this arranged wedding, uh, by, uh, the godfather himself, Dr. Rumsfeld, uh, the Commandant on the Marine Corps, General Hagee was there. It was, uh, General Brown was there from SOCOM, you know, the, the husband and wife, we were the love child that resulted the first Marine Special Operations <laughs> Company. Um, uh, the intention was to abort this, uh, have us die on the operating table and, uh, I got the sense far before we deployed in conversations with the general that we're not going to have any military construction we were living in trailers The you know the previous enforced recon you had actual 0321 recon marines you had 100 in you know five platoons we had six on paper but um, so you basically had a you know 100 guys Actual uh, operators on the East Coast, West Coast, and three platoons overseas. So, roughly 300 pipe hitters that are uh, doing the job of commandos. Uh, the rest, you know, support personnel now. MARSOC stood up a 2,650 man organization to so kind of open the floodgates of all these people. They knew they could scale it back, but where did all these people go? Trailers. There's no plans for, you know, putting roots down. I said, hey, what about, you know, on the way across when I was at First Force Recon in Camp Pendleton, I stopped by Nellis. because I had been stationed in the Marine Corps version of Top Gun, so I went out to Red Flag, uh, talked. To, I realized we we're going to fight jointly. So I went to coordinate with the Air Force. I also drove out to Fort Campbell, talked to the Fifth Group guys, talked to uh, the 160th, because I knew this time in 2006, people a lot of people were getting killed and blown up. Uh, Dying and losing limbs from uh, roadside bombs, so I knew we were going to need assault support aircraft to transport us uh, as much as possible. So that's why I was coordinating with 160th. Went down to Hurlburt. This is all in the nine days across country from Camp Pendleton, there in San Diego, out to uh, Camp Lejeune, where we were activated. Went down to Hurlburt, talked to the Air Force Special Operations Command, swung through Bragg, talked to JSOC, talked to uh, USSOC, showed up at a. Uh, you know, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and it was like having the brakes put on. Uh, everything was, you know, I'm talking about, you know, hey, USASOC, you know, they got all this brand new sniper rifles, binocular night vision for depth perception, all this kit and this, no, 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 you're not going to get it. I'm like, hey, it's program records, special operations command. It was everything to shut any type of innovation and technology down. And I'm like, hey, if we do not participate and register these requirements, that just means the Rangers and the Green Berets and the SEALs are going to get more money and AFSOC's going to take the lion's share of it. So like we are really doing a disservice to these and they didn't call them raiders at the beginning. The Marine Corps didn't want that term used. It was a special that that has a different connotation. So, and it also means there's some roots being settled down and a lot of, the World War II Raiders had still lived and wanted that. Uh, so there was this big resistance to that. And we'll just call them Marines. And everything was the McDonald Land menu, Mc, McSob, uh, you know, Marine Special Operations Battalion. We are the MSOC. There was actually, this is not a group of alcoholics, but there was a Marine Special Operations Support Group. That's not a, a sausage <laughs> menu, but it was the M-sausage. And it's all these ridiculous terms that made no sense. And so you'd show up and, you're talking to Green Brays, you're talking to Rangers and like we're the Marshall guys. It was all it's like a boy band. You know, we're the we're the Marsoc guys. Uh, you didn't have any kind of green bray or seal type. You don't really need that, but there needs to be some differentiator right. on you have a special skill and a capability. Uh, we're not just some singing group called the Marsok guys. Right.
1: When you were going around to these different elements initially, like doing that, that world tour, uh, were they welcoming? Did they keep you at an arm's distance? Like how were they at the one sixtieth and down in Tampa and, and you know, all these units that you went and sort of yes. connected with?
0: Well, at first I didn't go to Tampa, but everybody else at the regimental levels and below were very welcoming. Um, they didn't have any any the the more specialized, like a JSOC that you know, immediately brought all of our human and signals intelligence guys and started having them integrate. They shared everything. It was, it was that was awesome. It was at the higher echelons where <clears throat> I sensed a lot of competition, not it, at all in the enlisted ranks. It was in uh, field grade and above, a lot of jealousy, a lot of envy. Um, uh, without naming names, with fifth group commander was like, don't even bother talking to the Uh, 160th you know they were originally they were designed and spread loaded across the green braid battalions but then uh, what do you say then uh, you know tier one units swallowed them up and you know that's all they're they're not going to support you they don't even support us and this is an assumption but at that time in 2006 this first company that I was a commanding officer of we were the shiny little uh, object in the room and the 160th is like hey you know, let's, these Marines seem like a, you know, I had had that experience as a weapons and tactics instructor in Yuma, Arizona. So I could talk the lingo with close air support and uh, ISR drones. And so we made this uh, great training evolution happen with the 160th. And that kind of rubbed some people at the 06 and above le- levels off. They're like, hey, how come they're playing with the Marines and they won't even give me support? Um, again, sort of like the story in the Bible about Joseph, you have some favored son that everybody else gets pissed off about. And, you know, they're not, it doesn't necessarily make you happy. Um, same thing with AFSOC. So by the time we deployed, we had 11 months. We did our own training up in Hawthorne because we thought we could go to Afghanistan. But then as you both know, if you look at that uh, tale of the tape from back in 2006, you had this full paper ad in the New York Times when the surge happened called general Petraeus is Petraeus was in charge of all American forces in Iraq and they surged a hundred thousand personnel in there. It was a very bloody and deadly time. So that was not popular. The Marine Corps to meet that surge pulled every Marine out of Afghanistan and surged everybody into Iraq. And so there was a strong tendency that we thought we were going to go to Iraq. However, the first thing I did is let's go up to the high desert in uh, Hawthorne, Nevada, and if we can operate in that uh, type of terrain, and it's just hedging our bets. You know, I'd been a stockbroker; I was, I'm always trying to you know do the what ifs, mitigate risks. Let's let's get our combat SOPs in a in a desert in a high altitude environment, and then uh, we moved on from there. But we were thinking the whole time, and then it sort of to the latter part of our workup. Oh, we're well, going to go to Afghanistan. And then that died off you're going to go to iraq and it was unknown so in comparison to the guys that weren't in special operations at that time what was going on well you guys can tell the story jack when you you know when you finish the q course and you get a green braid you know what group you're going to go to Mm -hmm. you know what country you're going to go to you're probably already told which fob you're going to be in for your entire deployment or be based out of and same thing when guys get their trident Uh, they first become a seal. They know, Hey, we're going to go to Iraq. We're going to go to this part of Iraq, uh, with us, you know, they were just like,
1: (laughs) daddy needs a new pair of shoes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just
0: uh, rolling the dice and, you know, special operations is you have a lot of capabilities, but when you have time to plan, it's the, you know, adage, you know, one third for the seniors to make their plan, two thirds at the tactical level to make their plan every week we are having meetings we were the only company in marsock at that time we're the only ones that formed and existed so it's not like there was a lot of hustle and bustle uh miss you know focus i mean you had one company uh so each week i'm and there was no battalion above me so i was talking to the general and his g staffs on i had three questions i asked if I can, and these were asked weekly by me to the general, what are these were my commander's critical information requirements? What is our mission? Are we going to be doing advise and assist? Are we going to be training the monkeys? Are we going to be flying the space shuttle like Chuck Yeager and dating the prom queen? Are we going to be doing that ourselves? Uh, are we going to be doing like these greenberry monkeys and training the monkey? Uh, I needed to know because that changes how our tactics are. Do we have to get language skills? Uh, so second was who will we be working for so I can coordinate with that commander and his staff and get their intentions on how we can support them. Three, I don't need a 10-digit grid. I need, but I do need a sub-region. I realize we're gonna, there was a little hint that we're going to go to CENTCOM, but as you both know, that leaves a lot open to your imagination and you can't properly train your force. I mean, CENTCOM goes from the Horn of Africa to, you know, to India. Uh, so uh, lots of a lot of things can change in there. Uh, so, but these weekly discussions, uh, you know, it fell on deaf ears weekly for 11 months. We found out when we got on the USS Baton in Norfolk and started heading East wow. towards Europe. Uh, so, you know, that's, that is a big deal. I know the Marines, it wouldn't be such of a big deal if we actually had the group of ships that we deployed on. And I'll talk about that in a second. You know, if we had support from them, but this first task force that we had was ironically engineered to be, to look exactly like the Marines when we deployed on the ships before is a force recon platoon. So we had a force recon platoon. We had an infantry platoon that was our security element, and we had a massive amount of intelligence capability, which when we got into theater and, you know, from doing the DoD, the Department of Defense's pre-publication security review. They don't only use certain words, but so I'll talk around it. But there was, uh, I'll just say, special forces units in the same area that we were operating in, and there was uh, other government agency uh, personnel in there. But they all looked at our, especially our signals intelligence, like hey, they started wanting to cherry pick, you know, those goodies right. and get their hands on our guys. So that. That didn't really happen, but I'm just saying we came in with a lot of capabilities. There was a lot of rumour that, hey, these Marines kind of cleaned the slate. They they did evaluations with AFSOC and the 160th and even in MARSOC and with the conventional Marine Corps on the groups of ships, and they rocked it. So that made a lot of people a little concerned about what – this isn't Force Recon, this is MARSOC. They put us on ship, and I think the Marine Corps wanted us on the ship's why? Because of control. Right. Uh, Right. You know, a couple years will go by another election and we'll keep it organized the same way as it was when they were on ships before. We'll just change the name back to Force Recon. And um, that ended up, as we all know now, not happening. However, we did deploy uh, a week after we were on the boats. We found we're going to go to Afghanistan.
3: Fred, one Jack. second. Um, thank you. I'm going to ask you to pick it up right back there. I just want to give a shout out to another sponsor for this show, uh, Sapgear, Gear at sapgear.com. Um, Tell you a little bit about these uh, gloves that uh, these utility gloves that they make. They have a full touch screen capable forefinger finger and thumb fold over finger construction to eliminate fingertip discomfort. Boop. Single layer palm for tactical sensitivity, tactile sensitivity. Uh, paracord pull loop. Updated palm area and an elastic wrist for quick don and off sequence. So, these are the pig delta green gloves uh, from our sponsors and friends over at Sap Gear. They make a bunch of other cool products that we've talked about in the past. And uh, if you guys use the uh, promo code team, you'll get 15% off your order. That's sapgear.com. Team is the promo code to get 15% off.
1: Yeah, there's some. <clears throat> if you've been using uh, some sort of Nomex or whatever tactical gloves, like
3: A A hand clap or a high fiver I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com.
0: No necessary. report prohibited by law. terms and conditions. 18+. Step
1: up, up your upgrade. game. Step up your game.
3: And uh, also check out our Patreon uh, link down in the description if you want to get access to these episodes ad-free. And there's also bonus episodes and bonus segments and cool stuff. So we appreciate all you out there who support this stream.
1: Speaking of Patreon, uh, I'm going to put the link uh, for A Few Bad Men uh, for the pre-order
2: which, which again is Fred's book, which yeah.
1: is coming out yeah.
3: June 7th. So just a couple of days from now, but you can go and pre-order it yeah. right now. Yeah. Well, they it's get also it before in the description for everybody who listens afterwards. It's right in the description. Yeah. Um-
1: so uh, real, real quick, Fred. I, I want to ask you because you guys went from being forced Recon to sort of like, you know, this this you know unholy matrimony and <laughs> you know getting dubbed Marsoc, and then you and then against the will of the greater Marine Corps, you got a little you got a little bit of that money. You got in on that you know that um, special operations one sixtieth birds man. You're and a big deal now. So what was it like? Be, be going from. You know, the same guys basically doing the job of Force Recon with like PVS-5s and field telephones, Vietnam-era field telephones, to to actually having some real money and getting that, you know, PVS-7 Charlie money and that, you know, SATCOM money.
0: You know, there's some credit that is due to uh, the guys, especially – some leaders out on the West coast that had uh, procured some equipment that was uh, all of a sudden we were using equipment. People were looking at, especially uh, Intel equipment, uh, some of our communication equipment. Um, yeah. We didn't have all the high speed mini guns right off the bat, but the stuff that really made the difference as far as uh, in, in the reconnaissance community, can you communicate? Mm-hmm. Uh, can when we're doing personality targeting, can we, find the enemy accurately and with a making calculated risk so that we had cutting edge stuff. And when we went into country, like the tier one guys, the other agency guys, they were like, Ooh, you know, they really, so on that aspect, and there was in that I need to give credit to a lot of enlisted and officer senior officers who made things happen, argued cases and got a lot of influence and persuasion to the to the right levels. And we had communication equipment. Yeah, we had some, we didn't have the best, um, and, and even I was doing that when I was stationed out in Yuma, Arizona, I learned that the aviators, that they have to think big in terms of dollars in order to have that technology and innovation, they have to think jointly. So as far as having gone through several combat deployments with force recon in Iraq, I was, you know, I'm this weirdo because I love controlling aviation. You know, so we had a ton of high-powered designators. Uh, we had a lot of, you know, I was coordinating with a lot of units uh, for training with close air support. So uh, getting ordnance off the rails of aircraft uh, was like a specialty that we really, that was important to me. But there was a lot of other people developing that. So when we first got in there, there was not parity but close to it with uh, what we could do controlling aviation assets with our intelligence assets and our communication assets. We were at or above uh, where a lot of other units were just because a lot of people made the case. And then when the the sad thing is, is like I described stuff with binocular night vision stuff that was expensive per man to get
3: mm-hmm.
0: when those floodgates open, the Marine Corps was trying to shut the floodgates and like, right. no, no, no. You, Everything you need, I'm like, hey, this stuff is literally life changing. People are going to get killed if you're driving a vehicle across the desert at night in these wadis and you don't have that depth perception. This is critical gear that we need. And and there was such a, there's like a thermopylae defense, you know, this, this uh, total resistance, like stop, don't, don't get that technology and it's like, so
3: crazy that it, the Marine Corps is like try,
1: trying to sabotage the Marine Corps. You, you know, what's funny is, uh, you know, the Marine Corps has, you know, that motto, improvise, adapt and overcome and for and for good reason. Right. Because they've had to. But it's sort of like it's less. sort of it's sort of like, well, you know, just because you can make a landmine out of bubblegum, tinfoil and, and a rubber band can. doesn't mean you have to when you can get real ones. <laughs> So, Fred, can can you talk us then um, through,
3: you know, you, you said that you found out you were getting deployed to Afghanistan. Um, can you walk us through some of those ma- those main questions? Where, where specifically were you going? What was the mission? Um, what did you guys start doing?
0: OK, good question, because we anticipated that there was going to that we were going to go into CENTCOM. We did not know where. And this uh, Rumpelstiltskin secret was said a year prior, so we left in January, but the year prior in February at the activation ceremony, that is when uh, General Brown, okay, of course he works for the Secretary of Defense, so even though he may not have wanted the, the marriage and the baby, he's, if, if you're a general, we've, why did the war last 20 years, I'm gonna you know, diverge to reconverge here in a second. Well, it didn't take us 20 years to kick somebody's ass like the Taliban. Uh, there's incentives when a, a war with people using weapons made two years after World War II and homemade explosives run around in sandals are are engaging and being decisive against us. That's because you, you hamstring people with rules of engagement. Uh, so, but it goes back to, you know, we were not given, you know, the information, uh, but I did know... At the activation ceremony general brown wanted to please his boss because he wants to go work for what boards of directors so they have a house and they're going to get flown in on the corporate jet you've both been to dulles and national you read the names on the top of the buildings around the pentagon and intelligence community that's who these look who's on their boards and uh you know if uh you, you need a badge to get access into the pentagon unless you're what an 09 or an 010 and what are they paid to do they're paid to influence and persuade and dangle that carrot. Like, Hey Jack, how's the wife and kids? You know, uh, it was great promoting the last 20 years, but uh, you've heard this company Oshkosh. We need a, we need a rep up there. They make these mind resistance, you know, armored protective vehicles. And uh, well, Dave, we're going to need somebody like you to, you know, just think about, you know, where you are going to transition to and we'll get you on the board. Uh, so it's, Look at where they all go. Where would Mattis go? Back to right. General Dynamics. Where General Dunford, when he became uh, retired for being Secretary of Defense? Oh, that's right, Lockheed Martin, SecDef right now, Raytheon. Uh, I'm not cheese. making the stuff up or embellishing it. So, but the moral of the story is General Brown saw the carrot. I got to please the Secretary of Defense. Right. And so he decided. He said at the activation ceremony that when they hit, I think it was the 31st parallel, I went back after. I heard that and, you know, got on the computer. Oh, he's talking to Suez Canals. He said, when they hit that parallel, they will be working for the Theater Special Operations Command. So I'm like, okay, that means we're going to be working for SOC Scent. And I immediately started calling down to Tampa at SOC and found a Marine, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Reese Rogers, and their G-35, the J-35, and said, hey, boss, what are you, what are you hearing? You're down there with your ear to the ground. Where are we going to go? I, of course, I bypassed and a lot of people got pretty pissed off. a guy in Fred Galvin uh, for jumping all the way down where the point of friction is at SOC sent where those decisions would be made eventually. Um, but again, there was just a lot of resistance. You know, the green braves it's, it's having MARSOC come in to your AO is uh, a task force of, you know just like a tier one task force you have a 45 man assault element a security element uh tons of trucks guns and uh intel out the ass well guess what is going to happen you're uh you know this task force is going to go there and and you know start checking people uh on the ice and so that's kind of like a The mistress meeting the wife, it's not necessarily the competition that the the house wants there. And so there was some rivalry, especially I noticed with the field grade officers The yeah, there's, you know, there's some uh, comparison of some anatomy parts when uh, you got there with some of the uh, non-commissioned officers on the enlisted side. But it wasn't like cutthroat, like screw you and we're not going to support you at all. It's just it's normal neanderthal male behavior uh, is you're trying to figure out who's who in the zoo and like who, who are these commandos checking in here and uh because really we had been focused entirely on iraq since mm-hmm. the start of the war and uh we really hadn't we had a couple guys deployments to afghanistan but you know standard butt sniffing type of stuff uh, but the the upper echelons of the army were the ones that were <clears throat> and you'll read in the book and the book is just it took me eleven years before I even left the Marine Corps to uh, put put in these Freedom of Information Act requests. Right, I had to fight twice with two different attorneys in federal court to get the the Article Fifteen Six investigation released, uh, as well as the transcripts from the Court of Inquiry. And again, I should go in here uh, talk about what this story is all about. Right. And yeah, the, the war crimes. But yeah, yeah, there is no need for this to be classified at all. So we get into Afghanistan, we do 30 patrols. Uh, Army officers, one thing about them, they're not stupid. They go to these schools and, you know, they have to be very specific. And I've been to some of these schools with the Army and they're, uh, they're real detail oriented Army officers. And so uh, an area of operation is defined by boundaries. Those are grids or geographic terrain features. And it's not just some imaginary, you know stream of consciousness like some guy with a cigar you know making a mark on a map uh but that's what it was when we went into uh, bagram there like just circled a blurb up there we did and i anticipated so we withheld all our intel guys from deploying on the ships because we knew that there would be a decision soon made and it was days after we got on ship and then those guys i had to fly into afghanistan and they pushed that echelon out to Eastern Afghanistan, where we we're going to be in Jalalabad airfield. And, uh, but we, we got out there and, you know, at first I got this uh, guidance from the siege of of commander, the army green break colonel from third group that put a big circle on the map up at Torbor mountains. This is the last place Osama bin Laden uh, was seen, you know, and it's, uh, you know, so what do Marines haven't been to Afghanistan thinking like Osama bin Laden? You're just like, mm-hmm. This is right. going to be some good stuff, man. i right. like, we're going to go after Bin Laden. Like, right. we're, we're the shit now. Right. You know. So, of course, you know, we're, you know, we're motivated and high five. Like, this is going to be great. But he gave me some uh, restrictions. He said, I cannot afford to have another Operation Red Wings. And that had happened about two years before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seals, this is a book uh, is, for those who don't know about uh, Lone Survivor, was the that book and movie was created about. Um,
3: we did an interview with Tony Brooks, who was one of the Rangers that uh, went and recovered the remains of, of those guys. Um, if people want to go and watch a past episode, but yeah.
0: Yes. So the Siege is just sort of commanded rightfully. So he said, Hey, you must have a quick reaction force. that's able to immediately reinforce you, but he wanted us up in those mountains doing, uh, and the French did that before us, the French special forces that were there. And of course, the French and the Alps, you know, that's uh, that's good times. And, uh, you know, nice boondoggle to yomp around the, the Torbor Mountains in the middle of winter. It's, uh, but our intel team that was there for a month prior to us was quickly informing me that, hey, Americans built this nice, they paid the, for this nice road, the first paved road in Afghanistan connecting the capitals of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And there's all this. Opium and poppy getting exported in this training sanctuary right next door here. We're right on the Afghan Taliban, Afghan Pakistan border. The Taliban are training and fully radicalizing these foreign fighters right over here in the sanctuary that we can't get to. And they all come not over the mountains in the middle of the winter, 14,000 foot snow covered peaks. They're, they're coming right across this, you know, checkpoint that they easily bribe this border guard and they're in. And then they what's this first town called? It's called the logistics node. That's where they link up with their handlers and they get pushed out to Kandahar, Kabul, Sangin Valley, everywhere to get their jihad on and kill the infidels. So that's what was going on. But we were still, you know, we we're following our orders. We'll get up there in the mountains. They approved one overflight for visual reconnaissance. And, you know, I had been an instructor the Marine Corps' top gun. I saw all these assault support aircraft, 47s, Blackhawks sitting on the airfield there in Jalalabad right in front of us sitting. Did I say sitting? Yeah, that's right. Doing nothing at all. And so there was this disconnect and this disparity from, you know, your verbiage to your actions. And that was at the Siege of Soda. So they wanted us to get up there. Uh, obviously, you've seen the tour Bores. You, you can get up on foot. It's a little bit challenging when it's covered in snow, but that does prevent us from immediately reinforcing them. So we identified from this army military police base that was right on the Afghan Pakistan border and our imagery analysts that we had with us organic to us. We saw some of the areas that were snow melted and we decided, okay, we'll push east and we'll be able to get up there uh, with our vehicles and we'll stage a quick reaction force on this base. uh, that can move up there in case they're needed immediately. We will do it without the, the helicopters, but they, the army There are uh, field grade officers or majors and above are like, you're not obeying the colonel's orders. Get up there in those mountains. It's like, you heard what the colonel said, you know, that involves certain resources, helicopters, which you won't give us for some reason. You just won't, you know, it's a catch 22. And we have to have a quick reaction force. So, you know, we sorted that out. We didn't know this village that we had to pass through to get to where the quick reaction force base would be staged. Had I mean this was a logistics note, body co. Mm-hmm. We knew there was four suicide bombers. We had good intel on the actual building that they were mm-hmm. in. So on that day of the fourth of March, we had a threefold patrol. We're going to go out and do some face-to-face coordination with the army and military police to coordinate what they said. But I wanted to look them in the eye, talk to them, and make sure that our Marines that are going to be stationed there as a QRF are not going to be some burden or you know screwed around with. And uh, so that face-to-face coordination occurred. We got there that morning, roughly about 6.45 ish. And the army military police had their patrol lined out. You know, they were doing their immediate action drills, contact front, contact right. And their procedure is our whole patrol of 30 Marines saw, they would duck down in their turrets and they would drive, drive, drive. So they're, they're rehearsing to duck and run and if you've been there to Torquem Gate, you see it's surrounded by steep mountains. So what's on an elevated ground? Observers mm-hmm. and observing their tactics and procedures. So anyway, we were just shaking our head. We made the coordination. We push out south from uh, that base at Torquem Gate and headed into the Torbor Mountains for a mountain reconnaissance patrol to see uh, firsthand exactly what's going on in those mountains, how we can get in and out. We spent some time there and then we got back out on the road for the third uh, purpose of our mission. One, to do the coordination, two, to do the mountain reconnaissance, three, to do a tribal leader engagement in the body co As we entered that village baseline completely shifted from what it was three hours earlier when we passed through there originally when it was men, women, children, hustle and bustle. Now we just see fighting age men lined up on the side of the road, staring at us, so as soon as i saw that shift you know came out of the radio hey watch out then a car bomb detonated blew up right in front of our second vehicle which was uh that was the anomaly vehicle it was a high back had uh the steel plates uh with a open air troop compartment Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. uh, overhead uh, that was used as an ambulance in case we needed the rest of the five vehicles were fully enclosed steel armored vehicles Uh, I believe that was likely uh, intentional that they attacked that one that was perceived to be uh, more vulnerable. As soon as that uh, vehicle went off, it knocked the communications uh, equipment out of the vehicle, went off on the bumper right at the very front of that vehicle, knocked the turret gunner down in the vehicle. He was on fire, immediately stood to his feet. We stopped there at the kill zone, uh, preparing for us to counterattack. A vehicle came to T-bone. sports utility vehicle, a Toyota Prado driver, and then three passengers, three passengers hanging out the windows firing AK-47s fully automatic at us, uh, trying to finish off that uh, vehicle number two. The gunner in the turret stood up on fire, extinguished himself, uh, grabbed the medium machine gun, uh, commando out of the back troop compartment stood up with his light machine gun. They both aimed in and, and killed those guys. The driver bailed out. Uh, was continuing to fire at us with his AK-47. And we received, once we killed the passengers and the vehicle stopped, we started getting pinged uh, by dismounts on the right side, on the opposite side of the road. So they were having a suppressing element and then the others would bound towards us as they were doing fire maneuver. We received fire from a sniper fire from a hillside that the U.S. Army Criminal Investigative Laboratories down in Georgia, later on, they analyzed their metal um analyzed the armor on the sides of our vehicles. It was impacted by the rounds of a Soviet Dragunov sniper rifle, which wow. um, I'm going to speed forward here a little bit, but we had an air force investigator come out to do the army to the article 15 six preliminary investigation. You know, call me crazy. <clears throat> That's kind of like having a plumber be your proctologist. Uh, it can be done. It's probably not recommended. Um, you know, maybe if you don't wanna sit down the right way for a while, but this guy kind of jacked us up pretty good. And uh, he came out uh, and after the in, interviewing the first two vehicles and Marines, no Afghans decided to kick us out of the country. So now I'm gonna go back to, back to the ambush. So we started getting hit with on the right side of the vehicle, sniper fire. They had a mob of fighting age men uh, swarm at us, drag a vehicle across the road, trapping us in there. So we were there five minutes. We assessed that we could move, uh, although we didn't have communication with second view. We did hand arm signals. Okay, so after five minutes killing the fighters on both sides of the road, we fired far above the heads of the unarmed mob in front of us. That separated them like the Red Sea. It was a smart move. And at this time, Marine Corps had this uh, real age-old antiquated edict that every, fo- every shot is a lethal shot. Right. So the the sergeant did a really good job at not uh, firing at people. I mean, we needed to get out of the kill zone at this point. We were being trapped in there. But he fired above their heads. Uh, That that got them out of the way, and we uh, bypassed around that vehicle, came back to the base. And within 20 minutes from being ambushed to arriving back on the base, we get this, uh, you know, a Marine gunnery sergeant comes up to my vehicle, says, hey, sir, this is on the BBC radio already that you guys killed Afghan civilians. And so at that point, you know, you're in this damage control mode. Uh, We go into debrief to get all the information, and we started sending that up to both the Special Operations Task Force in Bagram, as well as the local battlefield commander. Uh, So they got that information immediately. The court of inquiry that was later held a year later, uh, you know, it's on the record stated that they heard our radio transmissions when we were on the X at 9 o'clock in the morning that we were in troops in contact, we got hit with a suicide-borne improvised explosive device, um, you know, we did a counterattack, so they got that voice and data uh, instantly from myself and the platoon commander that were uh, transmitting that from the kill zone. Uh, so but there was all this room and, of course, these Army majors were like, the Marines, they had to, they didn't, they didn't know and they were keeping this a secret. They, uh, Colonel, Colonel Haas, he had to get this information from the media. He didn't even know about this, you know, and the Marines failed to report. It's like, again, in the book, A Few Bad Men, it describes how information was received chronologically. So you had all this rument and hearsay conjecture uh, that, you know, was going on. You hear, you hear in the front of the story how the, the Afghans, you know, use these stringers to do this information operation campaign, right. you know, push all this information out that was reinforced with mass rioting across Jalalabad, the nearest town there. And then the president, uh, provincial governor Sharzai complained to the president of Afghanistan, Hamidi Karzai, who publicly condemned us, then didn't take long for the generals to buckle and kick us out. Uh, and that was after the first two vehicles of Marines, no Afghans were interviewed. Uh, so, the investigation took a month, but uh, after the second day that the investigator was there, uh, the determination was to kick us out. And just like in the Pat Tillman case, there were facts that were known, uh, but you know they're going to make the the narrative and fit what the decision of those senior leaders are.
3: The you know I've, I've told you this before. I mean, and I, just to kind of illuminate for the the public out or the audience out there. I was in the uh, special forces qualification course when this happened, and the rumour was incredibly strong. And the the rumen, the the rumors that were going around about you and about your men were that you went through this village in Afghanistan and just wantonly lit up every civilian home there, just mowing down uh, Afghans for no good reason, which is like a black and white day and night difference from the complex ambush that you just described that you actually witnessed when you were there. Um, and this, so this was the rumor that was going around within special operations at that time.
0: Yes, Jack, I've heard you mention that, and I've heard others that went to Army's command and staff uh, just down the road here in Monterey. I had a, a naval postgraduate school doctor who actually deployed on the ships with us. He was a cultural expert. He provided a lot of good information to us about the Afghan culture is, and it was completely coincidental that he was on the ship. Um, you know, the Marine Corps court of inquiry tried to say that the Marine Corps put him in, like the Marine Corps didn't know, a damn, they, they withheld trying to find any information out. This guy just happened to be on the ship and then he got, he was going over and he flew in from Europe to go into Afghanistan. Uh, to do some studies for Naval postgraduate school. But I talked to him years later and he said, after this happened, when he was in Afghanistan, he heard when he was there and he said, and this was only just a few years ago, he said, and I've heard to this day from all these senior special operations officers that come through here that you guys killed all these people and got away with murder. And a friend of mine who I'd known before he was a Marine and he's working for this other agency that let's just say they they train local commandos, uh, civilian organization. And he came back from the village that morning and shows up. It's, this is described in the book. And he says, Hey, Fred, that locals are saying that you guys were drunk and went door to doors, like sport killing these people. And I'm like, "This guy is serious, he's asking, he's, they swung him. Like right. they, they convinced him. I'm like, I'm like, Okay, we left at six o'clock in the morning. Do you see me on the sauce? I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, I was a by the book guy. I'm not saying I had every pair of boots with, you know, right over left with a bridge on the bottom. You know, like, you know, but we didn't roll out the gate drunk and we didn't even dismount of our vehicles, let alone kill women and children, women and children were gone, you've seen how in Afghanistan, you know, when they're getting ready to fight, they'd have right. this mass exodus of the civilians and women, kids. And that's what we saw. And that's what we sensed. And that's what, what you know, had our heightened sense, like, okay. And <clears throat> well, we can taste what's about ready to come, but um, I say that the wrong way. Yeah. So, so, but, so anyway, lay, lay,
3: lay honest then what, um, what happened? I mean, you said they start an investigation, but like only two days into it, you guys are kicked out of theater at that point.
0: That's right. So then we told the seesaw operations, we uh, headed to Kuwait and uh, you know, they were, of course we knew like, okay, they have to cut my head off and they cut my senior enlisted head off too. Um, and, and we knew they were trying to play like, yeah, we're, we're going to figure out what's going on. My battalion commander was going to come over there and he didn't even, honestly, I think he just lacked the courage because I've never seen or heard of this anytime before or after he had me relieve myself. He was right there, you know, instead of having the guts to say, Hey, you're relieved and and telling the Marines, whatever he had me go up in front of the command. And I think he did this probably to, you know, inflict the pain. Uh, But uh, you know, they try to act like he heard us out, but in his actual first question, he was believing what the local elders said is it true you guys were drunk. And uh, I'm like, if you had spent any amount of time during the 11 months before we deployed, right. and if you had known my deployment, my reputation, because we had previously been the CEO of second force recon. And I was at first force recon, you know, we had one active duty platoon that would deploy, you know, go over on these flyover deployments. And that's what first and second force recon did for the first three and a half years, of the war in Iraq is we would do a six month on six month off rotation between the East and West coast force recon companies. So, he, he had seen that these guys went over to Iraq, ran up the score. These guys were, like, stacking bodies up like cordwood. He knew what the deal was and, you know, that we're not going to roll out and
1: That's, drunk. you know, the whole idea is ridiculous. Like, where are you going to get enough alcohol in Af- out in the outskirts of Afghanistan to get 30 men drunk to begin that, with?
3: Uh, I mean, right. I can believe that maybe a handful of guys, you know, talk and get their story straight on something. But 30 Marines cooking up a story. And then on top of that, you have all the physical evidence um, that was collected of the ambush. Like, come come on. But so, so tell, tell us what happened, what happened next.
2: Yes.
0: So it's, it's kind of interesting. Then we uh, get kicked out, go back. There's seven of us. They focus on that. The the air force Colonel highly qualified guy who uh, coincidentally the SOC commander that ordered the investigation on us, and he's in charge of all special forces in the Middle East, uh, Major General Frank Kearney at the time. He had previously, six months prior to that, orders an investigation against um, ODA 374, who, you know, their team leader, uh, Captain Dave Staple, had been out with his team on an approved capture-kill mission. Uh, they positively identified Uh, the the insurgent who was a bomb maker and one shot from his uh, master and Troy Anderson, his uh, team sergeant, shot the guy in the head, one bullet on an approved capture kill mission. And General Kearney uh, also did the same thing to Captain Dave Staple and master and Troy Anderson charged him with homicide. So uh, they ended up beating that. But the, the thing is, is the same Arm, or the same air force colonel goes out there and even CID who investigated the ODA situation said, Hey, there's, this was legit. There's nothing there. No, Colonel Pahana, he's, he's one of the few bad men mentioned in the book. And you, you don't just, you know, hear it. You, you see their picture and you read their testimony that is now, there's no reason to be classified. What I described to you, you know, Dave and Jack, that is, completely it's a gun battle there's right i'm not talking about jason Bourne's knock list or locations of submarines at sea or satellites right. in orbit this is a gun battle uh no reason to classify this but what happened is the rusted decision we get back they you know we lawyered up the seven of us and we're talking this isn't uh you know jaywalking or you know some crazy allegation. This is mass murder. This is is the largest number of alleged Afghan civilians killed by direct fire weapons in the war. Um, You know, you hear uh, Eddie Gallagher, one guy, this isn't one guy killed. This isn't this is the 19 killed and 50 wounded. This is 69 Maldives, they said that we went sport killing, right, and uh, had some bloodlust. We're just gunned down. Uh, No. So anyway, we lawyer up. I take a polygraph from the Terrence Victor O'Malley, President American Polygraph Association, send that to the convening authority. Uh, so the article 15-6 goes from CENTCOM to SOCOM and uh, Special Operations Command, is turn- for some reason they, they send it to the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps sends it to... I, for some reason, this is how weak uh, general officers, you know, they wash their hands uh, I now the case is obviously goes where it should with the, the soft side, the Marine, Marine Special Operations Command should have adjudicated it, but General Halick, you know, he punts it to uh, down to Tampa Marine Special Operations or Marine Central Command. So the conventional force commander, none other than Lieutenant General Jim Mattis, who was in charge of all conventional Marines in the Middle East at the time, he was the convening authority. He's the one that decided where this was going to go. After we received my polygraph, I was on the patrol. I was one of the seven alleged mass murder. Uh, what does he do? He says, uh, I'm going to have 40, he unleashed 45 criminal investigators uh, out on us, four prosecuting attorneys, seven to one odds against us. Um, and then it narrowed down to two of us, myself and one other, we are determined we're going to be the uh, named parties in the court of inquiry, a very rarely used trial. So this trial was used I mean, a court martial couldn't be convened. because there was no crime facie evidence. There's no bodies, there's no blood, there's no bullets, there's no pictures of bodies in this case. Later they had pictures and some people said, Oh, those were from this incident. They didn't have any of that. So we went to this court of inquiry. Right. The risk of a court of inquiry, and I'm not a lawyer or a C lawyer, but it's there's no rules of evidence. So you can inject hearsay, conjecture, and you can turn it into this kangaroo court, which it became. So what happened was, and when you read this book, and I want to do a total spoiler, in the beginning of the book, you receive information that the media had. Mm-hmm. So what? Well, you receive the prosecution's side of the story because they slam us, and all these Afghans, you know, televised from this base. And I'm in this gurney. I'm paralyzed. These guys, you know, shot my son. We need to go to America. We need more money. Uh, help me, help me. Uh, Mr. Mr. So you hear all this and you're like, damn, these Marines are they need to go to Leavenworth permanently. And uh, next um, you you start to and then the book goes into life stories, some of the character development. But then in the end, you're reading like what when we went to defend ourselves, why was there a public affairs officer that came up from Tampa that worked directly for the convening authority? A lieutenant colonel for three and a half weeks. I mean, a media handler maybe. I mean, Jackie, you got experience. This. I mean, when you're covering news and stuff like that, you may have a corporal or a sergeant, not a lieutenant colonel, mm-hmm. coming up for three and a half weeks for the better part of a month to handle the media. But if you want to control the narrative and if you're wanting to make sure you control information and nothing's leaked, you you need a wise guy. And uh, but the Marine Corps should not be compared to or be the mob you're not there to manufacture evidence you're there to present evidence and what they did was they would during our defense witness we would all the colonel who's a legal advisor court of inquiry doesn't have a judge as a legal advisor so the colonel worked for the convening authority we're going to go to closed session we don't have anything to talk about even character witnesses so go through all the media reports back in 2008 during the trial and find one character witness that says anything about me. I mean, the the press was there. Right. I mean, these are guys that at that time, the reins, these senior officers hadn't been in Afghanistan. Right.
1: And just just uh, for for people, you know, who to give them an idea in this court of inquiry, you have Afghans who are appearing as witnesses saying oh he killed my family they killed my family members they killed this that, that this is that this even and they've got no proof at this point in time right that that this is oh. all going off of like they're right. as soon as you guys hit their log, logistics node they they plan to ambush you they do ambush you when you go into their log, logistics node near Torkham gate passing into Pakistan they you, you you lay some hate kill the people trying to kill you they get pissed so they send their PR people to uh whether it was the military or whether it was uh um, um Red cross Spanish. or who, whoever it was yeah and to say these Marines were drunk going house to house shooting people um an air Force investigator like nobody looks at your vehicles to see that they've taken fire. Nobody like at this time an air force investigators like, Oh, sounds legit. In, interview me. the 30 Marines that the, that
3: were there. Right. And if this is a murder investigation, the first question, where are the, bodies? where's the body? Where, where's the right. body? Yep. You need, you need a body. You need a murder weapon. Right. This, this is some, uh, I'm, I'm not Sherlock fucking homes here. Right. I mean, right. But
0: uh, <laughs> an inster- interesting point about the bodies and the numbers. So, this is what happened on the tapes. So the Afghan National Army's police and then Afghan border police immediately show up. Then that military police patrol, which was rehearsing, and I believe the ambush was aimed at them because they knew what would likely happen. And the twofold type of attack, whether it's kinetic and they kill Americans, or the Americans succeed and they have a information warfare arm that's launched. Uh, they're they're gonna win either way. However, they hit Marines, and we didn't duck and run. We we stood and counterattack. Um, however, the Afghan National Police, the Afghan Border Police, that show up, there was they said immediately afterwards, and then the military U.S. military police roll in. The only body you see this all over the media is the headless corpse of the suicide bomber. Mm-hmm. So those guys that we killed that had weapons were shooting at us were immediately you know, removed. Uh, so there was no evidence right there. But however, all these stories that came out uh, from different investigations, from different media sources, there was six bodies, there was eight bodies. It was 10, 12, 13, 16, 18. Finally, they went to 19. But what investigation in America would have a, a question on that? I mean, if unless it's a, you know, a plane crash, a right. civilian plane, you know, no manifest, or I mean, there's usually a quantified number you can have, you know, enumerate on a manifest who was killed. This was, I mean, it was a kangaroo court, you know, these Afghans, you know, every NCIS went over there two months after, and this is a whole nother story where they dogpiled on us. So NCIS wrote this operation order of how they're gonna do it, they're gonna, which made the operation order I'll give it to him. Made sense. We're going to send a team to Kuwait, to investigate the Marines. We're going to send a team to Afghanistan and investigate the crime. They called it a crime scene. So right. they were already, there's a little bit. Right. You go somewhere and uh, you use terms and you report the victims and the crime scene. Mm-hmm. It's possibly been influenced. Uh, and then when you say you're going to have two teams conduct this simultaneous investigation for, you know, rapid uh, recovery of evidence. And then you spend a month dogpiling Marines in Kuwait and you don't get to Afghanistan for two months uh, and you only spend 60 minutes out on the objective. Do you, and, but they did, um, they did uncover a lot of evidence and it was really important and and that's what's in the book. So that was like classified and I got Mm -hmm. it declassified, you know, that's, Oh, they so there was brass found in the the vehicle that was shot that we shot up the one that's shown all over New York Times. There was brass found in the dry riverbed. So when you hear the information at the beginning of the book and it's all this negative stuff, you're thinking that these Marines need to go to hell. And then towards the last half of the book, and you see everything that's in the courtroom, all this made up stuff. Now you hear senior military officers. Sworn under sworn statements, they thought they would be protected for the rest of their lives because this kangaroo court was going to classify this whole thing. You read their statements. This isn't Fred, impre- these are quotes of sw- sworn statements on the stand. These senior officers making this, and you know like, wait a second, this guy is now a four star general. He's retired. All right. these guys got retired. The guy who's being nominated right now by, and he's going to have his confirmation hearing with Senate Armed Service Committee, Cavoli. he was he was in on this fix and he's getting, he's going to, he's been nominated for the Supreme Allied commander of Europe. Uh, You see all these guys and it's, it's weird how, I mean, you look at, you know, people that are up there. I mean, you look at the secretary or the chairman of joint chiefs of staff, warrior or well-nourished, you know, guy. I mean, be honest. I mean, the guy was a a diet team leader. uh, So he had to been, Physically fit at one, he knows what the standard is. Right, but are we being led by the best? Why are all these guys getting promoted so fast? And you read in this particular case, and you wonder like the morale, especially. And I'm going to diverge again here for a second. When you look at what's going on in Russia, and you see that they have a superior numbers, superior technology, their training that they had, <clears throat> they have every advantage. So what's the disconnect? Why are they at a standstill? I would submit it's not because they're supply lines and just the logistics, I'd say a huge portion is the morale. Mm-hmm. And when you have non-commissioned officers and frontline foot soldiers in the trenches who don't trust and don't respect those above them, are they going to fight with everything they have? Or are they just going to kick the can down the road? So this should be important to every American right yeah, here yeah. because we don't have a choice. If the people's liberation army pushes 96 miles across the streets, we're not going to watch it on TV. Mm-hmm. Americans are going to go in and fight. We're going to get dragged in by a treaty and we don't have a choice. So if China decides like we're going to do our reunification time now or whenever it is, right. we have to be ready and we have to have forces with high morale. And you you guys have interviewed other people. I'm not the only one. You've got a pulse on what's going on with the morale of those on the front lines. And I, was, I just started working at Tesla a month ago. I was, spent four more four years working as a civilian uh, for the marines and special operation command pacific out in hawaii uh, we all know what's going on in our forces right now and for those that don't because you're not in the military or haven't been for a while you you need to you know put your ear to the ground and figure out what's going on and are we ready uh what is the senior echelons like is it corrupt i mean how was afghanistan handled last august has anybody right. been held accountable right uh, how does that affect morale after people fought there, had many friends died and wounded there and, you know, nobody's taken accountability. We have this goat rope retreat is what it was. I'm not talking about uh, a massage retreat. I'm talking about uh, a retreat, a, a full retreat like what we did. Um, that's that is embarrassing. And that's why less yeah. than a year later, Russia invades Ukraine. Uh, something else you don't hear about in the news, which is happening left and right, is, you know, old Uncle Kim is launching missiles out of North Korea left and right. Uh, what are we doing about it? Why is that happening so much? It's because we're a joke. Uh, yeah. Our military leaders are perceived in the international arena as weak. What, what do you
1: think, did you ever draw a line between, like, the, these officers that went on record, but they didn't think it'd be on record because they thought everything would be classified, which is again yes, weird because it, was it wasn't yeah it, it was it was all classified and it's and like you said it's not it wasn't some super secret like operation nope. you guys were running it was it was a criminal investigate well you know it was this but did you ever find like what what happened did did somebody make you know jump to a conclusion that everybody else started piling on did their dislike of a Marsock and wanting to get rid of Marsock is. did that have anything to do with it you it, know
3: it, it almost feels like per, personal the way they came after you and it's like did fred sleep with the commandant's wife or something like what the hell, what the hell is uh. this what is this really about you know i mean you know what i mean fred that like it, yeah. it it's so clear that there's so much evidence in this case um that this was a, a legitimate military engagement And yet, even after that um, began to come out, they continued to, I'll I'll use the word, persecute your Marines. Um, And and to Dave's point, I mean, were you ever kind of able to um, connect the dots there as to, to why that happened?
0: Well, some of that involves an assumption that, because I'll use a hallmark phrase, when you care enough to send the very best, you send, 45 criminal investigators. That's unprecedented. That didn't happen in Haditha. That didn't happen in Hamdaniyah. Uh It happened in our case. So in, in those cases, we're going on simultaneous to ours mm-hmm. with nearly as large numbers, but just in, well, in the Hamdaniyah case, um, but in Iraq. He, filled mine up too. Um, anyway, uh, <clears throat> I could just take a pull from the jug. But anyway, um, yeah, it did feel personal because you know, this was a situation, you know, at the twenty year mark that I had been in service, like nothing I mean, here was the elite of the elite and I really did feel that you know, there's resentment just because the Marine Corps didn't want to get into this. Right. And we were gonna be the fall guy. Right. We were mm-hmm. the disposable heroes that they wanted to go down into. So some things going on that I've learned since uh you know, being from Kansas, I wasn't a politically, I didn't grow up with a political identity or anything, didn't know politics, period. But what was going on in the background in 2007, we're heading into a general presidential election cycle. So like I just had, had mentioned previously, there's this ad with a surge, a full-page thing, general betray us. It was really ugly in Iraq. And what do you have going on in Afghanistan now? Now this narrative, false narrative, now these Marines are killing civilians. Uh, you know, who's the incumbent? A Republican. Why are we putting these guys in Afghanistan? So making this whole, you know, you see these themes and messages in information operations. And I I realized that we were a pawn in this political play. uh, People were, felt we were expendable. And uh, so I didn't realize that right away. But then I realized that once they made their decision and they kicked us out, we're the first unit and only unit the Marine Corps to ever be kicked out of a theater. Uh, the Marine Corps, you know, is a it is an awesome organization formed in a bar there in Philadelphia by a bunch of the bar owner was pouring booze down these guys' necks. You know, that guy was our first Commandant of the Marine Corps, Samuel Nicholas, and he was telling these mates like, "Hey lads, we're gonna you know they, of course they were drunk uh, that's that's a given and like we're gonna kill these British." You know we're gonna we're gonna savage them, and uh you know so it's a good organization. This book isn't about anti-American or anti-Marine Corps. It's about a few bad men, just like the title says. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if somebody's done all these great things, but if you betray and you come after to cut the throat of your Marines when you know they're innocent, I mean they had my polygraph, they had all the statements, they had thirty statements from the Marines, every one of us on that patrol. Uh, and you go along with a narrative that you know is a lie. And it's not like this hasn't happened. Everybody understood what happened in Corporal Pat Tillman's case. They knew what the truth was. Mm-hmm. And they made a decision to go in a different direction. Right, right. They knew what the facts were. And facts can't be changed, but they did change the narrative. And and we we all, Jack, Dave, we've been involved in... Information warfare and psychological operations—that's that's part of the maneuver that we're, you know, we integrate into. And you can do that to the enemy. You cannot do that to your own forces. You cannot do that legally to the American people, right. not with the Department of Defense. And and that is, as you said, Dave. You know, some of this, you know, was classified. Well, that they classified it. It's really, truly for what it is. Is its censure.
2: Uh-huh. It is
0: not. American. It's not what any Americans, we don't agree on. I mean, some people went after are going after my boss, Elon, because he's a, you know, wants to have free speech. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that is an American, you know, one of the things that we should all agree on is freedom of speech, freedom of press freedom of vote, freedom of bear arms and worship. But uh, you know, the uh, they decided what people were going to hear and they're not going to hear a few bad men, is open kimono uh story about what truly happened and i fought for 11 years to get that information declassified and here it is so yeah so uh, let's,
3: let's let's continue with, with your story what was the ultimate result of that court of inquiry what what ended up coming out of that
0: a good good very good question so three and a half weeks in the courtroom longest trial marine corps history longest war crime and and for the largest alleged number of alleged killed and wounded by direct fire weapons, machine guns and rifles, but um, three and a half weeks in the courtroom, media out of it most of the time. And they deliberated, they presented in uh, April. Usually you have a verdict the next day, <laughs> why they took that long, and this was very sensitive, but when you, when you have to wait so long, there's, there's political reasons. It's not that the boss is so busy. I mean, this was a big case this was international right. media you right. guys were hearing it all over the military it's all over the news around the globe but uh they briefed the convening authority and they used non-legal terms so they didn't say innocent i mean you guys have i'm not asking if you've you know been the been the accused but you've probably observed as a spectator maybe the accused uh, <clears throat> but military justice cases end in either innocent guilty or dismissed but in the longest war crime with the largest number and you say and you put it out to only one news source on a friday night just like tonight mm-hmm. and we know in the media world that's called a friday night news dump especially when it's they selected the day four days after four months four four months after the trial yeah on memorial day weekend Oh and yeah. Just yeah. They're, tr- they're, they're trying to bury it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Because what happens four months on a Memorial day weekend, there's very few, because we know like this time of year, there's not a lot of holidays after uh, president's day and Martin Luther King. So they waited and waited and waited. And then they put it out in what happens in the Pentagon When you want news to be buried with what happened in the stock market, what happened overseas and this and that, you're going to have all these other higher priority events that over a four day military weekend, which it was, they dumped it on Friday night of Memorial Day weekend, you know, 14 years ago, last Friday, they dumped it. And uh, they use this phrase, the Marines acted appropriately, according to the rules of engagements and tactics, techniques and procedure for a complex ambush. And some people can say, well, you guys were exonerated. Really? Why did the media, you know, for another eight years until I retired and got out and and we just kept getting, you know, these drive-bys in the media saying, well, they got away with murder. They they kept saying, they never said they were innocent. Right. And that's true. Right. So the media was reporting the information that the media had. Right. But when you don't give them anything or you don't use legal terms such as innocent, guilty, or dismissed. Right. They leave they it open
1: go? they leave it open for interpretation however somebody and wants the, to. And the statements of your men are
3: all classified at this
1: time.
0: Right. Yeah, they were. And actually, when you talk about censure, they gave us a quote unquote protective order. So you tell me if this is protecting you or is this more aligned to censure. The order was, you know, while General Mattis was a convening authority, it stated that if any of us, to include our attorneys, speak to the press during before or during this trial that we will be punished according to the uniform code of military justice. And if we had civilian attorneys, they said that we will send a letter to the bar requesting that they be disbarred. Uh, So I don't think that's even
3: lawful. I don't think you can lawfully say that to a civilian attorney. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, I've got the letter. I've got a copy of the letter. And so we had this gag order put on us and I complied with that. And then I retired the day I retired, Jack, um, Military Times run this hit ad on me saying, you know, Fred Galvin killed 19 and wounded 50, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I contacted that managing editor. I'm now friends with but he all he did is change the words that we killed up to 19 and wounded 50. And I, but I gave him my polygraph. I gave him the executive summary from the court of inquiry. I told him, like, what you're writing is not based on any facts. Right. You need to stop writing it. He just modified it, but it had the same – meaning uh, six months later after I retired as the Marine Corps high holy day called the Marine Corps birthday Marines found it in a bar there we all celebrate it. We all get drunk. And like everybody, that's the intention to do, to celebrate, eat some cake and drink some rum. And then, uh, so on that day, they did another drive-by, same news source. I uh, said, we, they used the phrase, we killed up to 19, 150. So at that time I'm like, I'm not calling the managing editor. I'm a business owner. I'm going to call the president of the Gannett Media Corporation. And I had an earful with him. He sent two guys out for six days at two separate times out to Kansas, where I was from and moved back to. Uh, they interviewed me and I, I had a lot of that information that I fought to declassify. Uh, it was coming in. I got more as the time went on, but I gave to them a uh, just a ton of it. They wrote a five-part series, which uh, I remember that in 2016 won the presidential for president Ford foundation award for reporting on the department of defense. Uh, so, inform- so I started, you know, I had a business. I was going to grad school. I was taking care of her dying sister and uh, had a gold star charity. I was busy moved, trying to move on with my life, mm-hmm. uh, but they would still do some more. Uh, Washington post did a drive-by and that's what led me Dave to want to You know, put this in a form, request all the information. Right. uh, So Americans know everything about what went on. Right. uh, From their sworn statements. These are what these senior officers said under oath in court. It's unadulterated, it's not paraphrased. Uh, I know Nick Kaufman, he wrote several articles. And when I was in China on our MBA residency, uh, I was. I was his Enigma machine because I was giving him all this declassified information that had no reason being classified to begin with. You know, the security classification guide prohibits anyone from classifying something for the purpose of saving some from embarrassment. Right. And this is textbook. Just that again, it's censure. So I was the Enigma machine that was defining what nouns, who was talking about what uh, to, to Nick as he was writing that series in the soft rep uh, in 2016, which was, very, very in-depth and described. And, and Nick, he just posted page after page. I mean, it's it was redacted, but he put in who was talking <laughs> from what I was giving him. Uh, but nothing, like this book is the same way. It's not paraphrased. It's not edited here and there. It's But it is, as is, is you guys both know me, um, you know my game. I just learned to walk upright. I'm still, you know, half caveman in this is not written in military jargon, it's in plain language. It's written by Salmana, who's uh, written other books, written for Playboy and Los Angeles Times. He's a professional journalist and it's written in a very clear, understandable language right. that uh, the story comes, it's, you, you will be kind of twisted and turned several times based yeah. on how this information warfare played out chronologically, you'll think we're guilty. And then you'll think we're innocent and you'll think we're guilty again.
1: You know, and- Fred, it's it's interesting because, you know, the military put a gag order, order on you, and yet they also released your name to the public. So, right, like your name was released to the public. People knew, like, you don't know who, who r- random Marines are, right? A Marine <laughs> serving right now, you don't know who they are, but the public knew your name, but but the details were classified, what people are saying, Right.
0: Yes. So that's a good point, too. Um, It fits along with this information warfare. One of the things you're trying to do in information warfare is cause doubt and demoralization. Right. So without trying to turn this into uh, psychological operation one on one. They did use not just our names. They allowed the media to take our photographs. Uh, There was two of us, myself and one of their co defendant um, I was the one I entered the courtroom the front of the courtroom so they took the pictures you see those on the internet me entering the courtroom but what was I wearing Now this is a court military court um, war crimes case a serious one do you see any other cases how Haditha, where you see them in their camouflage utilities not I'm not talking for an article 32 hearing I'm talking a court right Name one where you see a Marine walking in and out. You know, this isn't some non-judicial punishment right. in front of the battalion commander. This is a court. What do you see me wearing? I mean, do you want to put Marines, some of the most decorated Marines, uh, wounded in action, multiple combat deployments, uh, highly decorated force recon commandos, uh, first Marine Special Operations Task Force commander, do you want to have them walking in their service uniforms? looking like jack nicholson no not at all we we were ordered to wear our camis Um, so not only did they use that tactic and give our names out let the media photograph us they gave our these we're not boasting this is just fact we were marine special operators accused of killing mass murdering afghan civilians and when you give what they did is they gave our names our hometowns our age is i mean that kind of publicly right. identifying information is how, how sound is that? Right. Uh, when these, I mean, we were under fire. We fought our way out of an ambush. We we're getting dumped on in the courtroom. And then those military, it doesn't leak. They just give it to them. Um, but is that taking care of your Marines? Is that what, protecting them? What was
3: know. uh friend? I'm just curious to know what was the impact that all of this had? What happened to those 30 Marines? What's happened to your enlisted men and NCOs? Uh, in the aftermath of
0: this? Yes, great question. So uh, there's two of us that went in the courtroom. The other one ended up uh, having some severe cancer, had F surgery and radiation. Uh, severely affected him. His platoon sergeant who was, when these were forced recon guys, uh, just going back and forth to and from the war for several years and then going, Smart socks activated, going back out. You know, he ended up getting diabetes. So, like, the stress from that, uh, the three of the four of us who were married, you know, we did strong point our youngest Marine uh, because the attorneys that I hired, they said, who's your youngest and who's married? And we had our youngest Marine, he had a one-year-old son. And uh, I said, I'm going to made the deliberate intention that we're going to have the uh, civilian attorney that lived he was just had retired and lived outside the gate in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Like, you know, Hooks, you're going to be. Uh, you, we're matching you up with uh, Phil Stackhouse because I need you to be able to go see him face to face anytime you, you're stressing out about this. Mm-hmm. Because they they did the whole Terminator moment. They cut their arm, pulled it back, and you know we had a whoa shit this is real uh, moment where it's like hey they said they're going to come after. The youngest and who who's the most vulnerable? They're going to dogpile on him. So we made the intentional decision. So to answer that question a little bit more clearly, it affected our guys. But uh, Hooks, who you know, he's still in the Marines, he's a Raider. He's deployed right now, and he, his marriage survived. He's got a great family.
3: It's incredible. So some so some of these guys did pull through this this uh, you know scandal, if you will, um, and emerged on the other side of it.
0: Yes. Uh, you know, in the long run they did, I won't say that there was not a long struggle and mm-hmm. some of them. I will say this and, uh, you know, just talking to people now and sense that when you have some crucible moment, um, you need to get yourself away from the whiskey and the, yeah. the prescription medications. You need to be on a straight and narrow. Um, I've had, uh, one of these gals I used to date, she was a Navy nurse. She said, Fred, you know, she went on to do some uh, med- mental health credentialing. And she said that what we have found is that unless you believe in a, a higher power, when, when you truly, you're not, Oh I'm crazy. But when you have some severe post-traumatic stress, that if you don't believe in that higher power, the, the chances of your recovery, she says were negligible. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's almost, you're, you're going to be affected negatively the rest of your life. So um But I did have a a friend of mine that I went to a tactical air control party school uh, calling in airstrikes to be a joint terminal attack controller. He he was Navy SEAL. The two Navy SEALs uh, I went to the school with. And one, as soon as I I mean, there's not a course you take at the Marine Corps basic school that says, oh, when you're accused of war crime, here's the procedures you need to follow. Right. You know, it's it's enumerated here. Just follow this and you'll be good. Um, There's nothing like that. So I was like, where do you go? Right. And I reached out to some strange bed company. I talked to these Navy SEALs. I went to school and they were my friends. And this one guy, before he hung up the phone, he said, Hey, Fred, one other thing, you know, make sure you PT hard, get as hard of exercise right. as you can every day. And, and he did. And his, his, uh, that was the guy was the platoon commander, his assistant platoon commander, who I was a closer friend to, uh, who, when we went through the school and then I brought him out to Yuma and we were controlling uh, airstrikes, um, this dude was just a mountain of muscle, just a total, total beast. Uh, and he's the longest surviving person to this day with baboon lungs replacing it. So all I'm saying is, is this has severe physiological and mental side effects on people when you're accusing them of war crimes. And sure. then not just that, when you're innocent, and you fought yourself out heroically from a fight right? and you get back and you expect the Taliban to do this information warfare. But when your own are betraying yeah. you, and that's the key point in this book is not just the betrayal, but how do you overcome it? Right. And that's what a few bad men is all about is we, as Americans, we're, you think, man, we got inflation right now. We got high taxes. We're paying full price. You know, the, the number one line item, the non-discretionary spending, I mean, after all entitlements are paid, is the Department of Defense. Right. So this isn't cheap. Right. Why not get what we're paying for?
1: What? I are mean, you you're
0: driving. Oh, I'm ahead. sorry.
1: I'm sorry about that. Oh, go ahead. Finish that thought. I apologize. I'm
0: just saying, like, if you're driving the Rolls Royce, you better get the full package and everything that it comes with and that warranty and better not let it fall apart. And that's what's going on right now with our military. We've, we've seen it hijacked. You see all this stupidity and re-engineering going on and the morale is so low. But it's not like we're getting it at a discount. It's it hasn't become any cheaper. It's getting more expensive. And we will be called upon China isn't doing these amphibious rehearsals for general purpose. They're not just like, We don't have anything better to do right now. They're doing it because they're planning to take Taiwan and they're gonna push across those straits. It's gonna come and we're gonna be in a fight with them, and we better be ready and we better have morale. And that is not going to be some uh, enemy that's wearing flip flops. That's going to be a determined enemy that has fifth generation fighters, drones, everything. And we're going to be we're going to be needing our very, very best. And are these leaders that you read a few bad men? It'll make you sick to your stomach. Do my recommendation? I've told people as I just recently reread the the hardcover is yeah the advanced copy is do not read this before you want to go to sleep. It will. It will piss you off that bad. Yeah, it will make yeah. you so angry that this happened to warriors, and that these leaders got away with it, and, and these and people went on to get promoted right. four stars, right, and rewarded handsomely.
1: And uh, we we saw that like with Danny Colson, too. We, we you know where where people. Uh, well, no, I'm not sorry. I'm sorry. Not was it Danny? No, who was blamed for uh, who was that we interviewed? Who was blamed for the Waco? Uh, that was Danny. It was Danny, right? Yeah. Where, you know, they have these stellar careers like yourself, you know, you, and then leadership somewhere in the government speaks and, and it's treated as law before they're even given it before you're even given a chance to defend yourself.
0: Yes. One, one thing I will also, I really want to emphasize, this is not a one-off and I wish it was. And I hope to God there's no sequel to A Few Bad Men 2. Right. However, a current mission in progress is the Marine Special Operations Command, the command I was in when this happened, is hunting down three of their own right now from a situation, as you may know, that uh, three uh, guys from MARSOC, two Marine Gunnery Sergeants, E7, and a corpsman were out in Airbill, yep. and retired Green Bray hit them. Uh, Punched Danny Dreher. The media doesn't want to cover any of this. Why, I don't know. Danny was a gunnery sergeant, African-American, punched in the face twice. Guy coming in a third time. uh, His mate punches him in the face one time. Uh, Retired Green, braids, 275 pounds, hits his head on the ground, dies four days later in Germany from asphyxiation on his vomit. Tragedy. That was not intended. These guys used one punch. They did not just what... Special operations teach, use the minimal amount of force. Mm-hmm. They do what Marine Corps martial arts program. Every Marine is trained and has, has to be qualified in this self-defense. And, and I mean,
3: they, they picked them up and took them to the hospital too, didn't they?
0: They reported it immediately. They oh. took him back on the base. They said, hey, make sure Chief Eric Gilman treats him. He was the 18 Delta corpsman. And they did. And they observed him. And, but it was it's totally unintentional. So now all three, does this make sense? Because everybody's like, that, that's crazy. All three are charged with homicide, and then get this: so uh, the prosecuting attorneys attempted this last year to put a gag order on these three as they're heading into their court marshals and uh, courts marshals tries to put a gag order on it. The judge, uh, Colonel Scott Woodard, who was you know the, in the arraignment hearing as they try to say, "Hey, we want a gag order on them." Uh, Colonel Scott Woodard was the defense attorney for my co-defendant in our MARSOC 7 trial. He was like, absolutely not. There will be no gag order on these guys.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then is this has gone on dragged on for three and a half years. So we have the situation that occurred this last November and December. So in November, uh, the, the case has gone on for three and a half years because it's a weak case for the government. You know, it's basically saying you don't have the right to self-defense mm-hmm. Is sad situation. Somebody died. But when you're attacked, this is why grown men should not be fighting, uh, especially grown men trained to kill others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the government's case is weak. Uh, a colonel from headquarters, Marine Corps Judge Advocate Division, up in the Pentagon, goes down to Camp Lejeune and tells eight defense attorney, military defense attorneys, that your fitness reports can protect you, but on the promotion board the colonel, who's the staff judge advocate, he'll know who you are and you're not protected. So he states this to these eight Marine attorneys. Which is
3: undue command influence right off the bat.
0: exactly. And then so the the judge, and so the first trial has occurred uh, with chief Eric Gilman, who's charged with homicide, charged with homicide and he medically treated uh, Rodriguez, uh, charged with homicide. They threw his case out with, Uh, dismissed it with extreme prejudice. Notice I use the term dismissed because that's a legal term, but he dismissed it with extreme prejudice, right? The government's wanting to file an appeal in that case, but the two Marine gunnery sergeants, uh, their Marine Raiders are still in the gauntlet under fire. And, you know, mainstream media doesn't even want to talk about this at all. Right. So my point in this tragedy highlights that when Good men do nothing, you know, evil prevails, the old saying. Uh, It actually emboldens those with the criminal mind that think that, you know what, we did this before, we'll just run a number six on them again. You know, we have absolute power. Uh, Now, is a closed loop. They're even bringing all the Marine Raiders out of Camp Pendleton, California, back to Mm -hmm. Lejeune's. So if you're in this loop that you're not going to get out of, and you're all in one base, what a strategic Uh and tactical nightmare. But... Do you think the convening authority, who's Major General Glenn, the commanding general for Marine Special Operations Command, do you think he's holding, a after three and a half years, a court-martial for no reason? Do you think those Marines have any pressure or any influence uh, by the convening authority on their promotions, their retentions, their next right. assignments? Uh, but I, in the again, civilian again, court, again, you don't have a jury under that kind of influence.
3: Fred, I mean, again, the, the question i have is why uh why is the marine corps persecuting marines like what's the point and let's be honest with ourselves the american public itself doesn't give a shit about this case like a couple a couple of marines punched a guy in the face in her bill and, and as you said it's tragic and i i don't i don't blame anybody for doing an investigation into it but john q public doesn't give a shit and even in your case unfortunately um a bunch of Afghans get killed, supposedly, and some Taliban people say maybe some people got killed. The American public doesn't, it couldn't even point to Afghanistan on a map. And I'm not, again, I believe in accountability and oversight and doing an investigation to get to the bottom of it is the right thing to do. Um, but my question, when I say it doesn't like it doesn't matter or people don't care, what I mean by that is, what is the incentive? What is the point of the Marine Corps? persecuting Marines when there's no, it doesn't seem like there's any tangible public, well, public good or, or public interest or a public
1: outcry, right? Pressure being put on them to, you know, to, to, to lie. You know, it's like they're eating their own because for their own gratification, which is weird, which would be weird too. What, what's
3: again, what's the point? Two,
0: two points that you guys make that I'll address. So, one, because the public doesn't care. I mean, again, this is the nation's largest employer. Until just recently, if you stacked up Amazon and Walmart on top of each other, as far as headcounts of employees, it wouldn't, until just recently, the two of them combined uh, just exceeded the total number of active reserve civilian and contractors in the Department of Defense. So this is but should we care the nation's largest employer? Now, Amazon can't put you on bread and water. Walmart can't, you know, imprison you for life. Right. Uh, the Department of Defense sentenced made the former major, Hassan Nadal, rightfully so, to death. Right. He will receive the death penalty. Uh, so there's extreme consequences in this type of poker game. And now you ask motive, like, why would they do that? Is this this is supposed to be a merit based organization? If have you guys, uh, when you're a Green Beret, have you ever been looked cross-eyed by, by some guy in the conventional forces? Or have you ever been in uh, a special forces group where somebody who's uh, slacked off and starts to look at you like a competitor uh, who, when you are at your very best, maybe it's just intellectually, maybe it's physically maybe it's tactically maybe it's all the above and you start to eclipse uh, some of those that maybe they're more senior rank you ever read that chapter in the bible where they said you know, saul has killed thousands and david has killed tens of thousands did that uh, encourage saul no it pissed him off and the marine corps is a very similar very prideful egotistical and self-righteous organization and the leaders you know need to be able to not have that affect their emotions in their decision making but they did and when you read this book you see point blank how these senior leaders testified under oath like they're not making sound logical decisions right right they're letting emotions and they're letting a narrative that they all went along with influence what they're saying coming out of their mouth and they just they they all fall their sword and that's that's why it was so important for me because I was the defendant, one of two, in the in the trial. And you're you're I'm listening to all this stuff, and it was bizarre uh, that the media is not there. That none of this is public. I thought it would never be public, and I had to fight like hell to make sure it was. And here it's in one place. And again, if you care for our national security, if that means anything to you, if you think that you're a little pissed off that the price of gas here in California is $6.37 a gallon and the inflation in some areas is over 28% year over year. If that makes you mad, just see what happens when we go to war with China and all the the chemicals that we use for everything in in our homes. Right. Doubles and triples uh, and they have control. Look what One Belt, One Road did in the last 20 years when we were horsing around in the Middle East and these guys were brokering deals with client states from one side of the globe to the next and you know who was getting rich uh, a lot of retired general officers right uh, who are who are the you know the the made men in this uh, circle game that you know they leave they retire where where do they all go is fred galvin making any of this up or just just look where they go I mean, yeah, is general so mattis fred- remember that company Thoranos, that he was a board yeah, of directors yeah. for i mean and he said this last year he testified the general didn't know I had my own money in it. Right. Well, of course, you're hoping to get rich, but Fred. you can't say because when you were a four-star general in charge of Central Command, all the forces of the Middle East, you sent emails to the Pentagon saying, tell me what obstacles need to be removed so that we can use this in Afghanistan. So if you're pushing and if you're coercing people to use this stuff, and then you go work for their board, you better damn well know it's going to be working or what it's all about if you're advocating this being used on people before the fda approves the damn thing right Fred, uh, can't uh, plead t- ignorance t-
3: tell us then um since you know you're pretty passionate about this subject and it's the title of your book tell us who who are the few bad men in your book let's let's throw some yeah salt. Let, let's uh let's let's get a little spicy here let's throw some shade okay. uh since since we have you here i mean who who are yeah. the who are the bad men what did they do and where are they now
0: okay you guys may want to knock a few of these back while I'm telling this story. <laughs> uh, because this book does, it not only names them, it, as you're reading about these people, it shows you the photo, the black and white. If you get the hardback version, it's in, it's in black and white because I know a lot of Marines like myself, we like to crayon. You know, sometimes we'll even eat the crayons. You can fill it in. And it, as it describes them, it gives their testimony, which these guys thought would never be made public. I fought and here it is. So I realized it's a matter of time before I'll likely be assassinated. I'm just joking, but it's uh, probably been in somebody's head. Uh, This is coming out like a piece of radioactive waste delivered by Amazon in a lead suit, your doorstep. Uh, This is not uh, friendly to general officers, but who are the made men? Uh, One is Colonel Patrick Pahana, Air Force uh, Special Operations Officer. Um, He was the one that General Frank Kearney, who was the commanding general at uh, Special Operations Command Central, he was, the, General Kearney was the Geppetto uh, pulling the strings on uh, Pat Pahana, uh, having him do what he did to ODA 374 in a steering investigation in a in a knowingly wrong way. Then what happened there is, you know, SOC sent, referred it to SOCOM, like I said, SOCOM uh, sent it over to the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps is like, you know what? We're not going to let this uh, Marine Special Operations Command handle this. We'll give it to a little, somebody a little bit more senior, Marine Central Command. We got a guy over there that he knows what to do. They gave it to General Mattis. Uh, do I think General Mattis is innocent when he had my polygraph and he had a uh, 40, he ordered 45 criminal investigators and four prosecuting attorneys to come after the seven of us and then just aim in on the two of us and then just aim in on me? I think that's coincidental. No. Did I see that happen in other war crimes cases going on. There's a reason we're called MARSOC Seven. There's the Hamania Eight. There's the Haditha Eight. Uh, ours was given some special treatment, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I'm a little pissed off because our guys got that wire brush, and it's affected their lives some to this day. Uh, that doesn't feel good. And uh, we've asked. I mean, Congressman Walter Jones is one of the good men. He he stood up the. Congressman, late congressman uh, from the district uh, we were in, in North Carolina's second district. He, having not known or seen us, he said, these Marines' rights have been maligned. He goes, why has their presumption of innocence been discarded? Uh, He's one of the good men. You had uh, Colonel Nicholson. Now, you know, he's a four-star general. John Nicholson is retired. He's uh, in charge of all forces in Afghanistan, which, how'd that go over in Afghanistan? um exactly but you know he was the one that made a public statement voluntarily to the press to the pentagon press corps live from afghanistan and you guys remember this this is the one thing that was famous about our case because nothing before has ever (laughs) been said so so condemning against americans uh he said this was a terrible terrible mistake this was a stain on our honor that American Marines killed innocent Afghan civilians. And he humbly and respectfully, uh, you know, asked for forgiveness. And then he went around and paid salation payments, the equivalent of four years average annual salary to everyone he could at this uh, Shura. So, um, yeah, he's, he's highly featured in this book. And uh, then there's just other Marines that could have, uh, you know, supported us. And they, they weren't as criminal, but we did have a um, Marine liaison uh, to that was over there in Bagram at the uh, Command Combined uh, Joint Special Operations Task Force headquarters. And he was a he was the dirtiest one of all, Major Scott Ukiley. And he sabotaged us. He drafted up this brief, uh, totally condemning us. He, uh, he threw every stone he could find against me and our task force. Uh, and why you would do that to your own—that you're sent over there, right? to right. Advocate for is despicable.
1: We, it's and the thing is, is you know, especially especially for the Marine Corps, where you know, esprit de corps, you know, semper fidelis, where that is that is like the blood that is supposed to run mm-hmm. through the vein of a Marine, and it's always not, faithful. Yeah, always faithful, and it's not that. You know, it's not that that would justify a cover up, but it would certainly justify even hadness, fair treatment and and the desire, the desire to see your Marine Corps unblemished and unstained instead of just like, oh, yeah, these guys must be guilty because because the Taliban and AQ have never, ever lied about anything.
0: Oh, no, straight, straight shooters. Yeah, that's not a tactic they use. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: And then so what the one last uh, thing is, God rest his soul, late Congressman Walter Jones, he did fight for us, literally to death. Um, He received an injury and he ended up dying slowly. uh, But he always told me, he said, Major Galvin, if it's the last thing I do, I will clear your Marines names. And so he sponsored House Resolution 21 in the 115th Congress, and for that two-year congressional session uh, from 2017 to 2019, unfortunately, unfortunately, until the day he died, it fell on deaf ears, and the purpose of that, it says you can Google search age period, RES period 21 in the 115th Congress, and it says to have the Commandant of the Marine Corps make a public statement stating that the Marines of Marine Special Operations Company Foxtrot were not at fault in the ambush on 4 March. Sat on deaf ears, the commandant was indifferent. Did nothing indifferent, didn't clear our names. People say, well, you know, that you guys were finally exonerated and let me be very clear about this. The Department of Navy had senior civilians that did an investigation. It was released the day after General Mattis was fired. General Mattis was a commanding authority in our case. Mattis was fired, and on the 2nd of January 2019, uh, this uh, panel that had been formed in May of the previous year. Who knows? I mean, if the Secretary of Defense was the boss in this investigation, now he's the boss of the Pentagon, you're probably going to be really careful. But the day he was fired, this thing came released, and it's a 12 page report. I know nick kaufman when he's in SoftRep released the whole thing and there's a link out there and software has this uh 12 page report and it is explicit my attorney was like fred i've worked on these cases my whole career and i've with the department of defense all i usually see is a one page it's so vague you don't you don't even know who they're talking about or what happened mm-hmm. you just know that the petitioner is now all clear because in your case, they named names in the verbiage in there, which is included in the book, A Few Bad Men, uh, is so over the top that they described who was immoral and unethical. They wow. said things were unjust. It completely exonerated us. But I'll go back and be very clear about what I first said. That was senior civilian leaders in the Department of the Navy and the Marines of the Department or the men's department, but we're in the Department of the Navy. And that's but they set the record straight in 2019. So uh, yes, we've been cleared, we've been fully exonerated. I just wish there was moral courage demonstrated by the senior leaders. Uh, we talk in the Marine Corps about, you know, standing up for your Marines, looking out for the morale. Uh, where is it right now in the MARSOC Three case? You think those Marines, and their wives and their kids have high morale? I mean, two of them were selected for promotion to include the chief who's, he's, his case has been dismissed. They still haven't promoted him. He was selected for promotion. That's, I mean, the whole thing started because they were out, you know, yeah, enjoying themselves. Right. Uh, because of promotion. Right. Three and a half years later, do you think that's, imp- you think you're looking out for people's morale? Right. Even after a guy's case is dismissed? Right. And he's not promoted?
3: Right. Fred. The the next point I wanted to get into, and I mean, I think you did a really amazing job outlining this and documenting all of it. And I'm really glad that you wrote this book to to tell the story of yourself and your men. Um, but I did want to circle back around on one point. Um, if from your perspective, a lot of this that when, when I say this doesn't make sense, what is this about? Um, if from your perspective, the conclusion that you it, it, tell me if I'm wrong was that a lot of this had to do with the Marine Corps just did not want MARSOC. Um, you alluded to that this was not something, this was the redheaded stepchild within the Marine Corps from the get go. There was no long term planning for it, as if they planned to dissolve it um, before too long anyway. And now this incident happened, and this was uh, a great, um, you know, never let a crisis go to waste, right? This, this, was, this was the opportunity to just disband MARSOC entirely.
0: Yes. And I will say things completely unclassified here that right now down in Tampa and Special Operations Command, there's still those there's there's plans to scuttle MARSOC. It's really? That it was ever wanted. And then to this day, Dave and Jack, do you think there's plan to similar with the use Do You think they're going to mm-hmm. roll up the flag down there and brag and shut it down? No, uh, no. I mean, you look at what happened when you talk about senior leader corruption. Um, am, am I making something up that you had a uh, General Yu, the last commanding general of uh, Marine Special Operations Command, he uh, made some land acquisition right outside of Camp Lejeune and decide, made the order to uh, these two Marine Raider battalions, the, the only two in Camp Lejeune, or Camp Pendleton, to move to Camp Lejeune. I mean. Uh, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, did he get punished? No, he got selected for his third star, but he just quietly he made it, he made a decision. Mm-hmm. He just was going to retire. Have you guys ever known a two-star general that selected for his third star and just walks walks it off? You know, like yeah, I got some other.
2: I'm he he f- doesn't <laughs> have any
0: better offers on the table. Who who does that? Uh, but the problem is we're tone deaf. We got problems in our marine corps uh the senior leaders to include in the marine special operations command i'm telling you trends this isn't good currently we have three marine special operators one is a corpsman Uh, they won't even that's a whole nother stupid story that they won't even the navy won't allow them to be called raiders uh but uh can you imagine you know in any, any other service that you go through this training and you do the same mission but you're not a you know you're not a full fledged member but anyway but uh we got problems when our guys right now who are out there are mistreated like this right. there's a reason that these guys just want to get out at 20 years here i just i left the military last month and all these guys you know most of which i knew and was friends with went from uh, enlisted to officer and they're like at 20 years and one day I'm retiring. They don't want when I mean, they can't say anything about it because there's some of these hot button topics. They're like endangered species that you really can't say anything about, or you're gonna be, you know, taken back and, you know, buried in a shallow grave. Uh, but the morale is so low right now. This is an issue. I'm not the unfaithful one that's breaking ranks. I'm just the one making everybody aware that we've got a problem. We gotta mm-hmm. take a close examination. What are you trained at when you know you get hit? You know, you do an evaluation, you check yourself, like, what other injuries do I have? You don't ignore it and sit there and like, God, that'll go away. You know, no, we have to pay attention to what's going on right now if we plan to be effective against these great power competition fights that we're going to face in the future.
3: So the, the book is A Few Bad Men, The True Story of U.S. Marines Ambushed in Afghanistan and Betrayed in America by our guest, Major Fred Galvin. Fred, uh, start wrapping things up here. Uh, I, I think we understand at this point why you wrote the book. I think, yeah. I think everyone gets you're, you're pretty passionate and fired up about and, and this. And it needs
1: to, it's a story that needs to be told. And like it, at some point, you know, <clears throat> at some point, the commandant of the Marine Corps needs to, whoever it is at whatever point in time needs to come out and publicly state. These guys yeah. were innocent. And what what yes. was what was the process like writing the book?
3: Were there any new revelations that that you dug up during the process of writing this? Um, what has there been a response from any of your men, your peers, uh, to the book so far?
0: A good question. You know, the thing is, just factually stating, done hundreds of interviews uh, since I retired in two thousand fourteen. Um, really started going public in the media in two thousand fifteen. Um, the Marine Corps has not disputed a single word, anything that I said. And as a retired officer, there is no statute of limitations for misconduct. So uh, they could, I'm on the pension. They can come back and prosecute me for anything, uh, anything misconduct. So, but uh, the Marines, especially those on the ambush, you know, they've constantly you know, they're, they're glad and they want to see this out, uh, tell our side of the story, the full the full events. Uh, but you know, the, I will also say this six months ago when this book was announced, it's coming out, I had a, a LinkedIn account and a Twitter account that were created. Uh, one said I was a Lieutenant Colonel, which I've never been promoted to Lieutenant Colonel others, but these fictitious accounts saying I was crazy, I was dying. And I was going to, you know, painting me as this madman, uh, a month ago I had my Facebook account hacked, uh, with a a link in there that was sent out from my own Facebook account. So all family and friends that I know got this thing. I think they saw the sales of the book trending, you know, as a number one (laughs) new release. And uh, as I'd send stuff out to family and friends that, you know, this uh, kind of corrupted that, and set it back a little bit. So, uh, but there is a lot of this information warfare. I saw this uh, one gentleman on LinkedIn saying, oh, you know, uh, don't buy this book it's a book of gripes by Fred Galvin. And I'm like a
3: book of gripes a little bit more than uh, that.
0: Mark S I said, okay, Mark Sutton, uh, <laughs> it hasn't been published yet. How do you know what's inside it? Uh, isn't that censure? I mean, do you, is that what you're advocating for? Or is it because your, your brother is in a, a military attorney, a Lieutenant Colonel at headquarters, Marine Corps, in the staff judge advocate division. I mean, I think he probably does know what's inside here because it's gone through the Pentagon's office pre-publication security review. So I will say that some high-level leaders probably aren't so uh thrilled this is not going to be on the commandant's reading list right. it's probably not going to be in any military post exchanges bookstore but if america wants to know the health mm-hmm. of the military they need to understand the good and the bad yeah and i'm not talking about all the good things that people have done now, this book has its in a equate this to the candy it's got our combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan but the trial is the meat and potatoes so don't get filled up on yeah you know the the hors d'oeuvres and the mint. you know you want to get into that trial and you'll see this is the stuff that makes it extraordinary this should never have happened nor should it ever happen again but it's going to and just like evidence with these guys in the MARSOC 3 we've got a problem and we cannot ignore it when you if you have something terminal in your life, cancer, or, you know, if you were the young Green Beret that went out and married the stripper uh, and she's just spending your money, you've got to make a decision and take some action and survive, because if you don't, you're it's going to end up, you know, killing you.
3: The book comes out in just a couple of days, June 7th uh it's up for pre-order now on amazon uh i'm definitely going to order a copy you you shared the a pdf with me but i, I want to get a hard copy yeah. of this book fred
1: a uh, few bad men check it out it's it's it'll depress you <laughs> it'll shock yeah. you and depress you uh but One definitely thing about check it out. gentlemen
0: is it's with supply chain issues i recommend pre-ordering it that's what i'll say don't uh don't try to wait to pick it up at a bookstore as there's likely going to be uh, some disappointment from you. Don't wait till after the seventh. Uh, algorithms figure the amount of production. Yeah. Uh, so if you pre-order it, you will sp- what the publisher says, you'll be guaranteed a copy. All
3: right, Fred. Uh, you, they don't uh, charge
0: you until it actually ships. T-
3: twisting my arm with your sales pitch, I'm going to go ahead <laughs> and pre-order it, pre- it now uh, <laughs> since I'm on the page. So
0: it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, books are sold. And,
3: and, and the link is down in the description, guys. Yeah. Um, so it's easy to, to get a, get a copy of it. Um, so if
0: if you're a, a caveman and you don't like to read, it is uh, on Audible, so you can have it read to you. Uh, it's on. Kindle for those that like uh, Kindle, uh, the book does have all the diagrams, glossary of acronyms and terms. It's very well written by Salmana. It's easy to understand. Uh, anybody in your family, a young kid, can understand what's going on in this book.
1: Yeah, I I think that uh, some people are going to be very shocked. And look, I I know you've had your day in court. I hope you. I hope that you and the other members of Marsart have like your your day in the press i hope that that there is widespread acknowledgement of not only your innocence but a bit but the the hostile actions that were taking taken by people in your own ranks against you and and the unjustified hostile
0: actions that and we need to have uh Military justice reform, uh, just like the case of this Marsak three, um, mm-hmm. s- similar to what's going on in sexual assault in the military, that has shown precedence as, You know, they're taking that out of the hands of the military. I know there's a lot in the Pentagon, senior ranks of like, we can't lose control of our military justice. But when you're proven that you
1: can't
3: do it, you have
0: right. a, you have this unlawful command influence. Yeah, when you have to influence military defense attorneys by threats right you're not big boys well and, and you know and, and that's we've not, lost our way
1: yeah and that's not just in your case like jack's talked about this and written about this extensively too that it goes the other way sometimes where we're like in civil case when there are cases on bases and things like that that are very real the command for its own self-interest will brush them under you know like like there needs to be Yeah,
3: there's a very weird dynamic that I've never quite understood about the military about how they will really persecute people who didn't do anything wrong. Right. Uh, but then they will sweep things under the rug where people really did some bad things and um
0: is because that usually a- senior officers?
3: Yes. I uh, but and and it does feel more like a feature than a bug unfortunately of the system. Um Fred uh, just a couple questions from uh viewers before I let you go. How likely is it that MARSOC will have a counterterrorism contribution to JSOC, and what advantage would could they bring to the fold in comparison to some of the other special mission units?
0: Yeah, I'm not able to officially speak on their part. I'm not part of that command, but I would say highly unlikely. Highly unlikely means probably won't happen. Uh, but what could they do? Um, I'll just say they've been doing it. Uh, in small numbers is all I'll say. Uh, JSOC is a joint command. I'll leave it at that. And, uh, those men have, which, uh, I have tons of friends and close respect for, uh, have been doing it at the highest levels. And one thing Marines, uh, it's like a cult. It's very, uh, I mean, they do a good job of brainwashing guys and getting these guys to, to do extreme things, uh, since the, hit I mean, Marines were coming alongside in ships, swinging over in ropes with swords, uh, killing people. That's, that's some pretty wild stuff, <laughs> uh, you know, some from some of the earliest days uh the American Revolution. So uh, Marines can definitely, if they had been given that opportunity, it, as an organic Marine force, that would be a phenomenal portion of our national security. But uh, I doubt that will Ever happened, unfortunately.
3: BP Izzy, thank you for uh, thank you for your donation. Again, our guest Fred Galvin. The book is A Few Bad Men. Up for pre order on Amazon. Uh, next episode is going to be Kim Carruthers. This dude served in the Ranger Battalion in Special Forces and worse, and served as a, and also worked as a private security contractor. Kim has, I think, he's one of those dudes that kind of did it all. I'm really excited to talk to him. I've been going back. Um, he's all teed up for next week. So really excited to have him on the show. And uh, we'll see you guys next Friday. Fred, thank you again for coming on the show, doing this interview, writing this book, and telling the story of, uh, of your men and, and what really happened out there.
1: Yeah, thank you, Fred. We appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for letting me uh, get this word out to your listeners. Really appreciate it.
3: Absolutely, folks. So we'll see everyone next Friday. Thanks, everyone. Buy the book.